0: Chapter Four of On Secret Service Detective Mystery Stories Based on Real Cases Solved by Government Agents by William Nelson Taft. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four The Clue on Shelf Forty Five. Of course, it is possible that patriotism might have prompted Mary McNillis to locate the clue which prevented an explosion that would have seriously hampered the munitions industry of the United States. But the fact remains that she did it principally because she was in love with Dick Walters, and Dick happened to be in the Secret Service. It was one case where Cupid scored over Mars, bill quinn eased the game leg which he won as the trophy of a counterfeiting raid some years before into a more comfortable position reached for his pipe and tobacco pouch and settled himself for another reminiscence of the service with which he had formerly been actively connected mary was and doubtless still is one of those red-headed, blue-eyed Irish beauties whom nature has peppered with just enough freckles to make them alluring, evidences that the sun itself couldn't help kissing her. But, from all I've been able to gather, the sun was in a class by itself. Until Dick Walters came upon the scene, Miss McNillis held herself strictly aloof from masculine company and much preferred to spend an evening with her books than to take a trip to Coney or any of the other resorts where a girl's kisses pass as current coin in payment for three or four hours' outing. Dick was just the kind of chap that would have appealed to Mary, or to most any other girl for that matter. Maybe you remember him. He used to be at the White House during Taft's regime But they shifted most of the force soon after Wilson came in, and Dick was sent out to the coast on an opium hunt that kept him busy for more than a year. In fact, he came east just in time to be assigned to the Von Ewald case, and, incidentally, to fall foul of Mary and Cupid, a pair that you couldn't tie, much less beat. The Von Ewald case, Quinn continued, after pausing a moment to repack his pipe, was one of the many exploits of the Secret Service that never got in the papers. To be strictly truthful, it wasn't as much a triumph for the SS as it was for Mary McNillis. And besides, we weren't at war with Germany at that time, so it had to be kept rather dark. But Germany was at war with us. You remember the Black Tom explosion in August 1916? Well, if the plans of Von Ewald and his associates hadn't been frustrated by a little red-headed girl with exceptional powers of observation, there would have been a detonation in Wilmington, Delaware, that would have made the Black Tom affair, with its damage of thirty millions of dollars, sound like the college yell of a deaf-and-dumb institute. As far back as January 1916, the Secret Service knew that there were a number of Germans in New York who desired nothing so much as to hinder the munitions industry of the United States, despite the fact that we were a neutral nation. From Harry Newton, the leader in the second plot to destroy the Welland Canal, and from Paul Siebe, who was implicated in the attempt to destroy shipping at Hoboken. They forced the information that the conspirators received their orders and drew their pay from a man of many aliases, known to his associates as No. 859, and occasionally to the world at large as Von Ewald. This much was known in Washington, but when you came to analyze the information, it didn't amount to a whole lot. It's one thing to know that someone is plotting murder and arson on a wholesale scale, but discovering the identity of that individual is an entirely different proposition, one which called for all the finesse and obstinacy for which the governmental detective services are famous. Another factor that complicated the situation was that speed was essential. The problem was entirely different from a counterfeiting or smuggling case, where you can be content to let the people on the other side of the table make as many moves as they wish, with the practical certainty that you will land them sooner or later. "'Give them plenty of rope and they'll land in Leavenworth' is a favorite axiom of the service, but here you had to conserve your rope to the uttermost. Every day that passed, meant that some new plot was that much nearer completion, that millions of dollars in property and the lives of no one knew how many people were still in danger. So the order went forward from the headquarters of the service, get the man known as Von Ewald and get him quick. Secret service men, postal inspectors, and Department of Justice agents "'were called in from all parts of the country "'and rushed to New York "'until the metropolis looked like the headquarters "'of a convention of governmental detectives. "'Grogan, the chap that landed Perry, "'the master counterfeiter, was there, "'as were George McMasters and Sid Shields, "'who prevented the revolution in Cuba three or four years ago. "'Jimmy Reynolds was borrowed "'from the Internal Revenue Bureau,' and Althaus, who spoke German like a native, was brought up from the border, where he had been working on a propaganda case just across the line. There must have been forty men turned loose on this assignment alone, and, in the course of the search for von Ewald, there were a number of other developments scarcely less important than the main issue. At least two of these, the Trenton taxicab tangle, and the affair of the girl at the switchboard are exploits worthy of separate mention. But, in spite of the great array of detective talent, no one could get a line on Von Ewald. In April, when Dick Walters returned from the coast, the other men in the service were frankly skeptical as to whether there was a Von Ewald at all. They had come to look upon him as a myth, a bugaboo, They couldn't deny that there must be some guiding spirit to the Teutonic plots, but they rather favored the theory that several men, rather than one, were to blame. Walter's instructions were just like the rest, to go to New York and stick on the job until the German conspirator was apprehended. Maybe it's one man, maybe there are half a dozen, the chief admitted, but we've got to nail them. The very fact that they haven't started anything of consequence since the early part of the year would appear to point to renewed activity very shortly. It's up to you and the other men already in New York to prevent the success of any of these plots. Walters listened patiently to all the dope that had been gathered, and then figured, as had every new man, that it was up to him to do a little sleuthing of his own. The headquarters of the German agents was supposed to be somewhere in Greenwich Village, on one of those half-grown alleys that always threatens to meet itself coming back. But more than a score of government operatives had combed that part of the town without securing a trace of anything tangible. On the average of once a night, the phone at headquarters would ring, and someone at the other end would send in a hurry call for help up in the Bronx, or in Harlem, or some other distant part of the city, where he thought he had turned up a clue. The men on duty would leap into the machine that always waited at the curb, and fracture every speed Law ever made, only to find, when they arrived, that it was a false alarm. Finally, after several weeks of that sort of thing, Conditions commenced to get on Dick's nerves. "'I'm going to tackle this thing on my own,' he announced. "'Luck is going to play as much of a part in landing Von Ewald as anything else, and luck never hunted with more than one man. "'Goodbye. See you fellows later.' But it was a good many weeks, August to be precise— before the men in the Federal Building had the opportunity of talking to Walters. He would report over the phone, of course, and drop down there every few days, but he'd only stay long enough to find out if there was any real news or any orders from Washington. Then he'd disappear uptown. "'Dick sure a-got a-grouch these days,' was the comment that went around after Walters had paid one of his flying visits." "'Yeah,' grunted Barry, who was on duty that night. "'Either the Von Ewald case has got on his nerves, "'or he's found a girl that can't see him.' Neither supposition missed the mark very far. Walters was getting sick and tired of the apparently fruitless chase after an elusive German. He had never known to flinch in the face of danger, often went out of his way to find it, in fact. But this constant search for a man whom nobody knew, a man of whom there wasn't the slightest description, was nerve-wracking, to say the least. Then, too, he had met Mary McNillis. He'd wandered into the public library one evening, just before closing time, and, like many another man, had fallen victim to Mary's red hair and Mary's Irish eyes but a brick wall was a soft proposition compared to Mary McNellis. Snubbing good-looking young men who thought that the tailors were missing an excellent model was part of the day's work with the little library girl, though she secretly admitted to herself that this one was a bit above the average. Dick didn't get a rise that night, though, or for some days after. Every evening at seven found him at the desk over which Miss McNillis presided, framing some almost intelligent question about books in order to prolong the conversation. Mary would answer politely, and that was all. But almost imperceptibly a bond of friendship sprang up between them. Maybe it was the fact that Dick's mother had been Irish, too. Or possibly it was because he admitted to himself that this girl was different from the rest, and admitting it, laid the foundation for a deep-souled respect that couldn't help but show in his manner. Within the month, Dick was taking her home, and in six weeks they were good pals, bumming around to queer out-of-the-way restaurants and planning outings which Dick, in his heart, knew could never materialize. Not until Von Ewald had been run to cover, at any rate. Several times Mary tried to find out her companion's profession, diplomatically, of course, but nevertheless she was curious. Naturally, Dick couldn't tell her. Said he had just finished a job on the coast and was taking a vacation in New York. But Mary had sense enough to know that he wasn't at leisure. Also, that he was working on something that kept his mind constantly active. For several times he had excused himself in a hurry, and then returned, anywhere from half an hour to an hour later, with a rather crestfallen expression. After they had reached the Dick and Mary stage, she came right out one night and asked him. "'Hun,' he told her, "'That's one thing that I've got to keep from you for a while. "'It's nothing that you would be ashamed of, though, "'but something that will make you mighty proud. "'At least,' he added, "'it'll make you proud if I don't fall down in the job almighty hard. "'Meanwhile, all I can do is ask you to trust me, will you?' The tips of her fingers rested on the back of his hand for just a moment before she said, "'You know I will, Dick,' and neither of them mentioned the subject from that time on. On the night of the Black Tom explosion, early in August, Dick didn't show up at the library at the usual hour, and while this didn't worry Mary, because it had happened several times before, she began to be annoyed when three nights passed the same way of course she had no way of knowing that the service had received a tip from a stool-pigeon on the payroll of the new york police force that a bunch of germans were planning a big explosion of some kind just a few hours before the earth rocked with the force of the blow-up in jersey every government operative in the city had been informed of the rumor but few of them had taken it seriously and not one had any reason to expect that the plot would culminate so close to New York. But the echo of the first blast had hardly died away before there were a dozen agents on the spot, weaving a network around the entire district. All they got for their pains, however, was a few suspects who very evidently didn't know a thing. "'So it was a very tired and disgusted Dick "'who entered the library four nights later "'and almost shambled up to Mary's desk. "'I'll be off duty in half an hour,' she told him. "'From the way you look, you need a little comforting.' "'I do that,' he admitted. "'Don't make me wait any longer than you have to.' "'And he amused himself by glancing over the late secrets after knowledge.' When they had finally seated themselves in a cozy corner of a little restaurant in the upper forties, Dick threw caution to the winds and told Mary all about his troubles. I haven't the least business to do it, he confessed, and if the chief found out, I'd be bounced so fast that it would make my head swim. But in the first place, I want you to marry me. And I know you wouldn't think of doing that unless you knew something more about me. There was just the flicker of a smile around Mary's mouth, as she said, almost perfunctorily, No, of course not. But her intuition told her that this wasn't the time to joke, and, before Walters could go on, she added, I know you well enough, Dick, not to worry about that end of it. So Walters told her everything from the beginning, and it didn't take more than five minutes at that. Outside of the fact that his people lived in Des Moines, and that he had been in the Secret Service for eight years, and that he hadn't been able to do a thing toward the apprehension of a certain German spy that the government was extremely anxious to locate, there was pitifully little to tell. The whole thing, he concluded, came to a head the other night, the night I didn't show up. We knew that something was going to break somewhere, but we couldn't discover where until it was too late to prevent the explosion across the river. Now that they've gotten away with that, they'll probably lay their lines for something even bigger. Well, now that I've told you, what do you think? You mean you'd like to marry me? "'Mary asked with a smile. "'I don't know how to put it any plainer,' Dick admitted. "'And what followed caused the waiter to wheel around "'and suddenly commence dusting off a table "'that already was bright enough to see your face in. "'There wasn't the slightest clue left after the Black Tom affair?' "'Mary asked as she straightened her hat. "'Not one,' We did find two of the bombs that hadn't exploded, devilishly clever arrangements, with a new combination of chemicals. Something was evidently wrong with the mixture, though, for they wouldn't go off, even when our experts started to play with them. The man who made them evidently wasn't quite sure of his ground. But there wasn't a thing about the bombs themselves that would provide any indication of where they came from. "'The man who made them must have had a pretty thorough knowledge of chemistry,' Mary mused. "'Mighty near perfect,' admitted Walters. "'At least six exploded on time, and, from what I understand, "'they were loaded to the muzzle with a mixture that no one but an expert would dare handle.' "'And,' continued Mary, with just a hint of excitement in her voice, "'The bomb-maker would continue to investigate the subject. "'He would want to get the latest information, the most recent books, the—' "'What are you driving at?' Walters interrupted. "'Just this.' "'And Mary leaned across the table so that there was no possibility of being overheard. "'We girls have a good deal of time on our hands.' so we get into the habit of making conjectures and forming theories about the regulars, the people who come into the library often enough for us to know them by sight. Up to a month ago, there was a man who dropped into the reference room nearly every day to consult books from shelf 45. Naturally, he came up to my desk and, as he usually arrived during the slack periods, I had plenty of time to study him. Maybe it was because I had been reading Lombroso, or possibly it's because I am just naturally observant. But I noticed that in addition to each of his ears being practically lobeless, one of them was quite pointed at the top, almost like a fox's. For a week he didn't show up, and then one day another man came in and asked for a book from shelf Forty-Five. Just as he turned away, I had a shock. Apparently he wasn't in the least like the other man in anything, save height. But neither of his ears had any lobes to speak of, and the top of them was pointed. When he returned the book, I looked him over pretty thoroughly, and came to the conclusion that, in spite of the fact that his general appearance differed entirely from the other man's... They were really one and the same. But what, grumbled Walters, has that to do with the Black Tom explosion? The last time this man came to the library, said Mary, was two days before the night you failed to arrive, two days before the explosion. And do you know what books are kept on shelf forty five? No, what? The latest works on the chemistry of explosives. Walter sat up with a jerk that threatened to overthrow the table. Mary, he said in a whisper, I've a hunch that you've succeeded where all the rest of us fell down. The disguises and the constant reference to books on explosives are certainly worth looking into. What name did this man give? Names? "'She corrected. "'I don't recall what they were, or the addresses, either. "'But it would be easy to find them on the cards. "'We don't have very many calls for books from Shelf 45.' "'It doesn't matter, though,' and Walters slipped back into his disconsolate mood. "'He wouldn't leave a lead as open as that, of course.' "'No, certainly not,' agreed Mary.' But the last time he was there, he asked for Professor Stevens's new book. It hadn't come in then, but I told him we expected it shortly. So, unless you men have scared him off, he'll be back in a day or two, possibly in a new disguise. Why don't you see the librarian, get a place as attendant in the reference room, and I'll tip you off the instant I spot that pointed ear." That's the thing he can't hide. The next morning there was a new employee in the reference room. No one knew where he came from, and no one, save the librarian and Mary McNillis, knew what he was there for, because his principal occupation appeared to be lounging around inconspicuously in the neighborhood of the information desk. There he stayed for three days. "'wondering whether this clue, like all the rest, "'would dissolve into thin air. "'About five o'clock on the afternoon of the third day, "'a man strolled up to Mary's desk "'and asked if Professor Stevens's book had come in yet. "'It was reposing at that moment on shelf 45, "'as Mary well knew, "'but she said she'd see and left the room.' "'carefully arranging her hair at the back of her neck with her left hand, "'a signal which she and Dick had agreed upon the preceding evening. "'Before she returned, the new attendant had vanished, "'but Dick Walters, in his usual garb, "'was loitering around the only entrance to the reference room, "'watching the suspect out of the corner of his eye. "'I'm sorry,' Mary reported. "'But the Stevens book won't be in until tomorrow.' And she was barely able to keep the anxiety out of her voice as she spoke. Had Dick gotten her signal? Would he be able to trail his man? Could he capture him without being injured? These and a score of other questions rushed through her mind as she saw the German leave the room. Once outside... Well, she'd have to wait for Dick to tell her what happened then. The man who was interested in the chemistry of explosives apparently wasn't in the least afraid of being followed, for he took a bus uptown, alighted at 83rd Street, and vanished into one of the innumerable small apartment houses in that section of the city. Walters kept close behind him, and he entered the lobby of the apartment house in time to hear his quarry ascending to the fourth floor. Then he signaled to the four men who had followed him up the avenue in a government-owned machine, men who had been stationed outside the library in the event of just such an occurrence, and instructed two of them to guard the rear of the house, while the other two remained in front. "'I'm going to make this hall myself,' Walter stated. But I want you boys to cover up in case anything happens to me. No matter what occurs, don't let him get away. Shoot first and ask questions afterward. And he had re-entered the house almost before he finished speaking. On the landing at the third floor, he paused long enough to give the men at the rear a chance to get located. Then a quick ring at the bell on the fourth floor and he waited for action nothing happened. Another ring, and still no response. As he pressed the button for the third time, the door swung slowly inward, affording only a glimpse of a dark, uninviting hall. But once he was inside, the door closed silently, and he heard a bolt slip into place. Simultaneously a spotlight, arranged over the doorway, flashed on, and Dick was almost dazzled by the glare. Out of the darkness came the guttural inquiry. "'What do you want?' "'Not a thing in the world,' replied Walters, "'except to know if a man named Simpson lives here.' "'No,' came the voice. "'He does not. Get out.' "'Sure I will, if you'll pull back that bolt. "'What's the idea, anyhow?' You're as mysterious as if you were running a bomb factory or something. As he spoke, he ducked, for if the words had the effect he hoped, the other would realize that he was cornered and attempt to escape. A guttural German oath followed by a rapid movement of the man's hand toward his hip pocket was the reply. In a flash, Dick slipped forward, bending low to avoid the expected attack, and seized the German in a half-Nelson that defied movement. Backing out of the circle of light, he held the helpless man in front of him, as a shelter in case of an attack from other occupants of the apartment, and called for assistance. The crash of glass at the rear told him that reinforcements had made their way up the fire escape and had broken in through the windows. A moment later came the sound of feet on the stairs, and the two other operatives were at the door, revolvers drawn and ready for action. But there wasn't any further struggle. Von Ewald, or whatever his real name was, for that was never decided, was alone and evidently realized that the odds were overwhelming. Meekly, almost placidly, he allowed the handcuffs to be slipped over his wrists and stood by as the secret servicemen searched the apartment. Not a line or record was found to implicate anyone else, but what they did discover was a box filled with bombs, precisely like those picked up on the scene of the Black Tom explosion, proof sufficient to send the German to the penitentiary for ten years for our laws, unfortunately, do not permit of the death penalty for spies unless caught red-handed by the military authorities. That he was the man for whom they were searching, the mysterious number 859, was apparent from the fact that papers concealed in his desk contained full details as to the arrangement of the Nemours plant at Wilmington, Delaware, with a dozen red dots indicative of the best places to plant bombs. Of his associates and the manner in which he managed his organization, there wasn't the slightest trace. But the Black Tom explosion, if you recall, was the last big catastrophe of its kind in America, and the capture of von Ewald was the reason that more of the German plots didn't succeed. The Treasury Department realized this fact when Mary McNillis, on the morning of the day she was to be married to Dick Walters, USS, received a very handsome chest of silver, including a platter engraved, to Miss Mary McNillis, whose cleverness and keen perception saved property valued at millions of dollars. No one ever found out who sent it, But it's a safe bet that the order came from Washington by way of Wilmington, where the Nemours plant still stands, thanks to the quickness of Mary's Irish eyes. End of chapter 4